it's appropriate in preparation for the week that we are entering into uh, to ask ourselves a question, to provoke, provoke our minds as we approach uh, Christmas. What difference does Christ's incarnation make for you? What difference does Christ's incarnation make for you? Does it make a difference? Are we, like everyone else, celebrating Christmas um, just as the world does? Is there a difference in the way you and I, we as followers of Jesus, celebrate Christmas? The Bible offers us a number of answers uh, to the question, what difference does Christ's incarnation make? But today, let's see how the book of Galatians answers this question. In God's providence, uh, we are working our way through the book of Galatians, and today we are at a place in the book uh, where the incarnation of Christ is referenced and spoken of. And uh, we are going to see how the book of Galatians answers the question of the difference the incarnation of Christ makes to those who put their faith in Jesus. I invite you to open uh, your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 7. Galatians chapter 4. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 7. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning as we hear from God. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the, set de until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, who are in heaven, we praise you for the word that you have given to us this morning. We praise you for the Holy Spirit that you have granted to us, to all those who trust and believe in Jesus. And Father, through your Holy Spirit, would you cause Christ to dwell among us, in us, even through the proclamation of your word. I pray that you would help me in the, in the proclamation of your word and help us all in the hearing of it. For the glory of Christ and to the presence and the power of the Spirit. Amen. The difference Christ's incarnation makes. The passage we have just read starts and ends with a picture, uh, with a reference uh, to an heir. Uh, it starts with an illustration of an heir in verse 1. And ends in verse 7 with the conclusion that those who are sons are heirs. What a gift 
to receive at Christmas. The inheritance. An inheritance. And this passage speaks to, uh, to what it means and how we become heirs of God. But though this text starts and ends with a picture of heirs, the text tells us there is a major obstacle we face. We start life not as sons, but as slaves. And unless the status changes for us, we have no chance of getting to the inheritance God has promised to us, to his people. Now, Paul's aim in this passage is to convince the Galatians that God has brought a solution, that God has provided a path forward, and we cannot become heirs by our own ways, by our own effort, through our own way of earning uh, the right to the inheritance. We become heirs, not through our effort, but we become heirs through God. I wonder if you, you saw that in the, the way verse 7 ends. Verse 7 is like the conclusion of, of this passage. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the gift. That's the promise. That's what God gives us at Christmas. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How exactly do we become heirs through God? How does that happen? The answer is through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's main point in this text is that Christ's incarnation brings the change from slavery to adoption, to sonship. The, the incarnation of Christ brings a change from being a slave to becoming a son. This is a big difference Christ's incarnation makes for all those who put their faith in Christ. Christ's incarnation brings a change from slavery to adoption. This is what Paul is trying to argue and, and convince the Galatians to understand and to embrace. Christ's incarnation brings the difference from slavery to adoption. Now let's break this down because our text has three main parts to it. Each of these parts uh, contribute an important element to the main message of this text. And the elements are the slavery, the incarnation, the adoption. The slavery, the incarnation, and the adoption. Here's another way to say the main point. The incarnation of Christ is a transition from slavery to sonship. And this is what we get. This is what we get at Christmas as we celebrate the coming of Christ to earth. Let's look at each of these elements. The slavery. We see this in verses 1 through 3. This is the status of every human being prior to the coming of Christ. 
enslaved. Now, if you were a Jew hearing this message, hearing this status through what Paul is, is describing and unfolding for us here, you would be offended. <laughs> uh, you, would, you would say, oh, okay, that, that's, for, that's for the Gentiles, but we Jews, oh, you, you don't understand. We, we're, we're the physical descendants. We're the physical heirs of, of Abraham. We are in the lineage. This is not for us. And Paul wants to say, even for those who think they're heirs, enslavement is part of the experience. So he gives an illustration. An illustration that is fitting first and foremost for the Jews, but also it's fitting for all of us as well. The illustration is how is it possible that someone who thought is an heir can still be going through the season of being enslaved? The illustration is of a minor child whose parents have died and the father has made arrangements for the child to be taken care of until the child reaches a certain time in his journey to adulthood. The illustration is in verses 1 and 2. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the, debt, until the day set by his father. Paul's point is simple. Even if a child is the heir of his father's inheritance, in his season of being a minor, the child is not able to enjoy the full freedom of sonship, being placed under guardians who make decisions for this child in his season of, of being a minor child. This child does not have the freedom to make decisions on his own for his life. And even though he is the legal owner of his father's inheritance, he has no right to make decisions on, his, on that inheritance until he becomes a full age, until the date set by his father in his will. There are Roman documents uh, from the first and second century that give examples of how, of how parents in their will would set the date when their children had to be under such tutelage, under such guardianship. And until that day arrived, the children literally had no right to make decisions for themselves or for what their parents have left as an inheritance. So if you were a first century person, Jew or Gentile alike, you would understand this illustration. The point is, no matter what your background is, you are entering the world, you're starting life with a season of being under bondage. So even the Jewish people who thought that they were physical heirs of Abraham must come to grips with the reality of being enslaved until the date set by the Father. Now, the fact that Paul has to give this illustration to help his Jewish audience accept the reality of enslavement tells us that as human beings, we are not ready to accept this diagnosis very easily. Are we? We would rather think of ourselves as free, not enslaved to anything. If the Jews 
had reason to think that they are free and not enslaved to anything uh, because they were Jews. We Americans have other reasons why we think we're free. We would uh, rather think of ourselves as entitled to our freedoms. After all, this is what it means to be an American, doesn't it? Think of the, of the last stanza in the, or the last line in the third stanza in the uh, Star-Spangled Banner. It closes with these words, and the Star-Spangled Banner in triumph doth wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Part of the DNA of being American is to think that freedom is our right. We are right to be free. We have the entitlement to be free. As a nation, the notion of freedom defines who we are and who we want to be. But the, the Bible awakens in us as well, uh, to, awakens us to the uncomfortable truth that we start life in bondage, even if we were born in the land of the free. We start life in bondage. For the Jews, this news was difficult to hear. As I say for us Americans, this news is also difficult to hear. Friends, just like the Jewish people who needed some convincing and some illustration to help them understand the reality of being enslaved, so we today, we need to be reminded and convinced from Scripture that being in the land of the free does not make us fully free. We're still enslaved. And think of the ways in which we today are enslaved. Just practically. Some people are enslaved to credit card debt. So hard to get out of it once you begin falling into it. Others are enslaved to the desires to have more and more and more. And when you give yourself to that desire, it doesn't free you to finally say, I've had enough. When you give yourself to that desire, it enslaves you so that no matter how much you have, it's never fully enough. You always want more. Others are enslaved to certain foods or drinks or just substances. We are enslaved in so many ways. I wonder what are ways in which you find yourself being enslaved. Paul explains a point of the illustration. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this is a point of illustration to drive home the point that we start life with enslavement. For all of us. Now you might say, enslaved to what? Paul says, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? It's a difficult phrase to interpret, a difficult phrase to translate. Depending on what Bible translation you use, you'll find this phrase rendered uh, in English with quite different expressions. That's because even Bible translators wrestle to understand what exactly is this phrase, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
Some Bible translations use the elemental, elemental things of the world or the elemental spiritual forces of the world or the basic forces of the world or the elements of the world. The phrase could be referring simply to the basic principles that are foundational for our universe. Here's, here's an example to that, if I can bring it home. Uh, if you are a reader or a writer, what is the basic element or what are the basic elements of reading and writing? The letters of the alphabet. The letters of the alphabet. You can't read and write if you don't know the alphabet. But just because a toddler might learn the letters of the alphabet does not mean that he knows how to read and write. If a child learns the alphabet at the age of two, oh, he's, he's off to a great start. But if a 10-year-old is only at the level of the alphabet, he has a deficiency, a learning disability, an inability that must be addressed. As, a, as foundational as the alphabet is, you, you can't progress without it. If you stay at its level, you end up being unable, limited, uh, suffering a disability. The biblical word would be enslaved. You can't move beyond that without some external help. If you remain 20, 10, 20 years at the level of the, of the alphabet, you're not free to learn. You're limited in what you can learn. It's a form of bondage. You see, if you remain bound to the elementary principles, it's not a positive situation. It's a bondage. So Paul's point is that spiritually, that is how we all are. In, in and with a spiritual disability. In bondage to the basic elements of the world. Now what those basic elements of the world are uh, can be different depending on who you ask. If you ask the ancient Greeks in, in, in the ancient world, they would say, well, it was a spiritual beings, the gods uh, invented in the Greek mythology. Uh, those who didn't buy into the spiritual world might say that the basic elements of the world were the natural elements, water, earth, fire, air. If you ask a Jewish person, what are the basic elements of the world? They'll say, well, it's God's law. For a Jew, the law of God was a basic principle that organized and held life together. And even that, Paul said earlier in chapter 3, that we are held captive by the law, imprisoned by it, in the sense that we could not escape its demands or its curses. So I'm persuaded that when Paul uses a phrase, enslaved to the elemental principles of the world, he's using an intentionally ambiguous language so that for the Jewish audience, they could understand it to be the law, 
for the non-Jewish element uh, audience, they could understand it to be anything that was basic in their worldview in terms of what was basic to the foundation of the earth. No matter what that was, the point is, the status is the same. Enslavement. Whether for Jews or Gentiles, prior to the coming of Christ, humanity stood enslaved to the basic principles of the universe. Even though that may, whatever that may be, if it's food, if it's the elemental elements of this world, or if it's some spiritual idea or concept, we are enslaved. But God planned for a time of the bondage to come to the end. And here's what he did to bring the bondage to the end. He sent forth his son to become man. Point number two in our text is moving from the slavery to the incarnation. We start life as slaves, as enslaved, even though we're born in the land of the free. But God, in his goodness, sent for his son. And we see the news of the incarnation of Jesus in verses 4 and 5. Look at what God did. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is what God did to bring our slavery to an end. Friends, when God saw it fit to bring our slavery to an end, he did not merely give a declaration of emancipation. God sent forth his son. And notice what was significant about the sending of the son. Two descriptions. God sent his son to be born of woman, born under the law, both of these descriptions highlight the incarnation. Why are these significant? Born of woman. Uh, through the incarnation, the Son of God, the eternal God, the Word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, He would become flesh, born of woman. He entered the human race, not as a powerful being, but as a helpless baby, spending nine months in Mary's womb, experiencing the process of human birth, going through infancy, and going and living, going through and living the childhood experiences as a minor child. The second description about his birth is that he was born under the law. Why is that significant? Well, the phrase under the law in the, book of, in the book of Galatians refers to being under bondage. Anytime Paul speaks of un, being under the law in this book, he speaks of the reality of being under bondage. With the incarnation of Jesus, he became human entering the human race, not so that he can be free, but so that he can actually be under the same bondage as we have been. 
and being under that bondage to bring us the freedom from it. To break the bondage and free us from it. Unlike us, when Jesus entered under the bondage of the law, he did not break any of God's laws. And with the incarnation of Jesus for the first time in human history, a human being appeared on the scene who was finally able to obey every one of God's commandments. Fully, perfectly, he entered under the law to actually fulfill it entirely. He experienced and carried the yoke of the law without any faltering. And he fully experienced the full measure of the curse of the law as well as if he was the one who broke the law, though he had not broken any of it. Both happened in the same person, in Jesus Christ. This is why Christ became man. This is why he became incarnate. And this is how God brought an end to our slavery by sending his son to become incarnate, to take on a human body, being born into the human race, entering under the, the bondage of the law so that fulfilling it and taking upon him all that the law demanded and required, Christ would bring an end to our slavery. What a glorious news this is. This is the news of the incarnation. He became like us under the bondage of the law to do what we could never do, to obey it fully and to pay fully for breaking it. Friends, do you see how Christ's incarnation makes a difference for our bondage? Have you ever considered why the incarnation of Christ is such a big deal for us as Christians? It brings the end of bondage. Bondage to the elemental principles of the world, whatever those are for you and I. I wonder what are the basic elements of this world that hold you captive, that hold you so dazzled, that so, hold you so tight to them that you are actually not free, not able to let the clutches out. You need someone else to help you Take off the, the load, the bondage of the inability that you experience. Oh, friends, Christ became incarnate and took the bondage upon him so that through his lifting of the bond of the law, we would become free from it. The freedom Christ brings is a very nuanced freedom. It's not only in a generic way the freedom from bondage, it's a very specific kind of freedom. It's not a generic freedom. It's a freedom of being sons and living fully like sons of God. So part number three in our text, we have looked at the slavery. We have looked at the incarnation. Let's look at the adoption. This is the freedom that we have been granted, being freed to live, to be and live like sons. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Look again at what is the purpose of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Look at how verses five, uh, 4 and 5 end. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be, receive adoption as sons. Friends, this is a freedom Christ bought us and brought to us. The freedom, not merely being free, but the freedom of being sons of the one who freed us. And this is what makes God, the Father, so different than Abraham Lincoln, who declared the Declaration of Emancipation. When Abraham Lincoln made a declaration that the slaves of this nation or the states that the Union was uh, fighting against, um, when he made the declaration, he simply declared them free from bondage. But he didn't say to them, now you're all part of the Lincoln family. Now you're all sons and daughters and the right heirs of my inheritance. Lincoln didn't say that, and he couldn't say that. But this is what God the Father has done in purchasing our freedom, in bringing our freedom. He doesn't merely free us to a generic freedom so we can just live free in the land of the free. He brings freedom to us, and it's a freedom of becoming sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. That's the adoption. That's why Christian freedom is so much different than just the notion of freedom that our world thinks of. Oh, friends, God sent his son to become human under the bondage of the law so that we who have been enslaved under the law could become sons again. And in order to change slaves into sons, God sent his son to live under the same bondage we were under. To rescue us from it. Friends, our adoption as sons of God is not merely a legal status. It is that, but it's not merely that. It is more than that. It's an experiential status as well. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba. The Aramaic word for father. God was not content simply to have legal children whose names were on a legal roster as part of the family, but that he would never hear back from them, that they would never want to see him, wouldn't want to have a relationship with him. It's not just sort of writing the adoption papers, filing them some, in some cabinet, in some office and just making it a legal official experience with no experiential day-to-day -day reality change god went further and because he made us sons through his son god also put his spirit the spirit of his son into our hearts and now that spirit is crying out from inside of us to the god of heaven Addressing him as daddy, father, 
sonship. Adoption as sons is an experiential reality, not just a legal status. Oh, friends, one of the ways that we show practically and experientially that God has made us sons and daughters of him is through the experience of prayer. Prayer. Our prayer to God as Father, as our Father who is in heaven, is only possible through the Spirit that God puts in us, by which we have the confidence that the God against whom we have rebelled, the God from whom we have been estranged, that God has invited us back and brought us back into the family. Oh, friends, we have rebelled against Him. But God sent his son to bring us back home and make us his sons again. And all that happened through the incarnation of Jesus. The way you know you have the spirit of God inside of you is not through some spectacular or supernatural gifts. You know you have the spirit of God inside of you through the unflashy and often hidden experience of prayer. Praying to God as your Father in heaven. Not because someone demands of you to pray. Not because it's your to-do list to pray. Not because it's just a spiritual discipline to pray. But because He is your Father and you are His child and you want to talk to daddy. Is that your experience of prayer? I love how John Stott put it so beautifully. God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of it. Oh, dear brother and sister in Christ, does your prayer life and does your prayer attitude reveal the posture of a slave or of a son or daughter of your heavenly father? Are you afraid to go to God in prayer as if he's a harsh master or a distant, uncaring, neglectful parent? Or are you going to him as your affectionate and caring Father. Let your experience of your prayer life be a reminder and prod you to think, am I approaching God based on what he has given to me in Jesus Christ? Paul closes his argument in verse 7, helping the Galatians to realize that because God sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, they are no longer slaves but sons. Their very prayer life, when they cry out to God as Father, is evidence that they are sons. And Paul concludes his message here saying, if you are sons of God, you are also heirs through God. Oh, friends, I wonder, I wonder if you have experienced a change from being a slave to becoming a son or daughter of God. I wonder if this change has happened for you.
if you're not sure if you've experienced a change from being enslaved to being a son and daughter, that's probably a good indication that it has not taken place. Because those who have experienced it know it. Those who have experienced it are assured of it through the presence of the Spirit that is inside of them. And if you are not sure of this experience, consider this as an invitation that God is making to you today. He sent His Son to become human like you and I, a slave under the bondage of the same law that you and I are under, so that you and I could become sons and daughters if you turn to Him by faith and reliance on what Christ has done to bring us the freedom of sonship. What amazing reminder this is for us as believers that we are called, and this is what we celebrate when we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ at Christmas. This is what Christ brought us. Sonship. Adoption as sons. You know, if, if we never think of ourselves as enslaved or as having been enslaved, we'll never be able to appreciate and understand the weightiness of this gift. But if you can be reminded of the past God has brought you from, being in bondage, being enslaved, and through the incarnation of Christ, who fulfilled the law of God perfectly in all its dimensions, we have been granted the freedom from that bondage and the freedom of living and being and experiencing the adoption as sons. What a gift that is to celebrate. Christ became human, took on human flesh, so we could become sons and heirs through God. This is the amazing difference Christ's incarnation brings. The change from slavery to adoption. Dear brothers and sisters, let's enjoy this Christmas season worshiping the God who sent forth his son so that we would be changed from slaves to sons. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us and teaches us and instructs us the amazing gift you have given to us through the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for reminding us of the amazing status and the amazing experience you have granted to us in Jesus Christ to be sons and daughters through you, not through our efforts, but through you, through what you have done for us. Gracious Father, increase in us the presence of your Spirit so that we may enjoy our relationship with you as sons and daughters of you. And Father, enjoy, increase in us a desire to make this news known and proclaimed so that others by coming to your family to be brought in, adopted, sons and daughters of the King. O oh, gracious Father, fill us with your Spirit in increasing measures so we may rejoice, so we may be full of gratitude for what you have done for us in Christ. In his name we pray.
Amen.